The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been moving through in large chunks and in large fashion through the story of the Exodus, the historic picture of God taking his people, taking the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt where they had been for 430 years. Uh, and they had been there, and they'd come under a new Pharaoh and suffering under uh, his regime. And God had sent Moses in, and Moses was God's mouthpiece. He was his prophet. He was his voice to come and to demonstrate the power of God to dismantle all of the gods of Egypt. And that now we saw that God is leading the people out, and he is moving them towards the promised land, back to the land that he had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And they're moving in that direction. And we said that God uh, had moved them in a way that was unique. It was uh, not the way that we would have expected him to. If they came out of Egypt, we would have expected them to head directly north, uh, right along the Mediterranean, to head up the coast. And in two to three weeks' time, uh, they would have been able to be in the promised land, settled there. But God said, no. That the Philistines in a militarized zone are there, and I know that you'll be discouraged uh, if we go that direction. So I'm going to take you south, and we're going to move around to the south. And it says that he moved them up to the Red Sea, that now they were facing the Red Sea. And that's where we pick up the story this week, that they're out of Egypt, uh, that there's upwards of a million people together there of God's, of the Hebrews, of his people, uh, now camped uh, at the Red Sea. And that's where we pick up the story and so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read a little bit of an extended uh, passage this morning, but I think it's important uh, to continually hear from God's Word and to let it speak to us more than for me to speak uh, to us about it. So open your Bibles to chapter 14 of Exodus and hear the Word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land and wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the hearts of Pharaoh, a king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that, we have, that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, 
which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Then the Lord will fight for you and will and you will only be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go, uh, they, they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen. Then the angel of God was going before the host of the people of Israel and moved and went behind. And the pillar of cloud moved uh, from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of the fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the, and the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into, the, fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots, and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord, saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. What a familiar story. We've seen it on the big screen in various and different ways. We've read it as children, many of you. You know the story, you picture it, you get a sense of it, you've heard sermons uh, preached on it, and so you're probably thinking today maybe, well, what new are we going to hear? What is it that, that's going to entice us and captivate us in this? And I don't know, per se, but I do know this, we're going to look at this maybe in a little different way than you've heard before. This sermon, like so many others, this passage at least, like so many others, can be preached in a way that really preaches well. I mean, it, you can elicit a good response, you can get people to say amen, and you can get it going, but it's not always dealing with the text properly. Because this sermon, or this text could be preached something like this, when you're facing your Red Seas, when you find yourselves backed up against a wall, 
uh, when it seems that all opposition is against you, just turn and call to the Lord and He'll deliver you and you'll be fine. He'll make you walk right through on dry ground. That sounds good. Because all of us have faced those Red Sea experiences when we find ourselves uh, backed up, we find ourselves in a place where we can't escape and we turn and we look and there's an enemy uh, like Egypt right on our heels and we go, oh no, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? Lord, get me out of this situation. Part the Red Sea so I can get through this thing. And if you preach it like that, you know what you find out? That you're going to have a lot of disappointed and discouraged people because that's not what this story is about. This isn't a day-to-day application. This isn't a story that can be preached like David and Goliath uh, when we've said before that if you preach David and Goliath to a bunch of young people and you tell them, see, God is your David, and you just go into the playground and you face all of your Goliaths, all of those bullies, you just stand up for them and you have faith in God and you have faith like David and you stand up to the bullies in your life. You know what you're going to have at home later on that day? There's a kid with a black eye and a bloodied nose wondering if God is really a God that's any good to serve. Because we love these stories, but we preach them and understand them so poorly. This story, this is kept for us in Scripture. This is protected for us throughout all of history so that we learn one thing more than anything else. And it's simply this. God is our salvation. Period. Uh, That this is the larger story. This is stepping back one step, coming uh, at a different angle and looking at the greater story from which every other story uh, is derived. That all of our hope has to come back to this. We have no hope, no hope in this world if not for God's saving love towards us in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the story in a nutshell. And then you may be going, oh, well, Bill, we know that. We've been coming to church a long time. Martin Luther said we could, he could preach the gospel message, the gospel of grace, every single week to his congregation because his congregation forgets it every single week. And here's what you've forgotten this week. You've forgotten how lost you really are and were before Christ. Over the course of time, if you came to faith a long time ago, over the course of time, maybe you've begun to think this. I wasn't really all that bad. You walked around the heritage this week and realized (laughs) there are a lot of people worse than me. And you do a little comparison and you look into a room and you feel better about yourself uh, by looking at other people and going, wow, I'm not that bad. Well, you need to be reminded of how lost you really were before Christ. And you thought maybe over the course of time, uh, you've realized that you're not, you're, you're pretty good. You're, you're relatively righteous. You come to church and, and that you add something into the equation uh, that God, God's really kind of lucky to have you uh, around and that you realized that maybe it was something like this. Now, God came 99 steps towards me, but I had to give that last step. I had to give a little bit of my own effort uh, in this. I needed to add just a little bit to the equation. Uh, in that and so we look and we misunderstand that the basis of our faith was always Christ and never us that the only bargaining chip we bring to the table is the bargaining chip of our desperate need and saying we we can offer absolutely nothing and so what we're going to talk about today is very base it's very at some level lower shelf for uh, the Christian faith, but it is essential. It is foundational. And it's from this that everything else springs forth. You won't follow and honor the Lord 
in your life, the conclusions that we're going to come to, it says that the people feared the Lord, they obeyed the Lord, and they praised the Lord. You won't see those things in your life growing and flourishing if you don't understand how lost you were, how saved you were in Christ Jesus, and how you were saved through Him. You just won't. Because then you'll go, well, I mean, I mean, I know God's asked all of this, but He can't really care about all of that. Or, I know we say this, we should worship and praise Him and everything, but I'm really not feeling it today. Maybe you're just not feeling it today. You know what I'm feeling today? An incredible high level of humidity uh, and uncomfortableness with the tie thing going on uh, and new shoes that uh, hurt my feet a little bit. And I sort of sit here and I go, gosh, God, are you worthy of praise? If I didn't realize how far I have come because of the work of Jesus Christ and how lost I was, uh, then all of the conditional things around me would somehow, they would they would affect my manner of worship and praise. But if you know the heart of the gospel, then you live your life in such a way that says, Lord, you can ask me anything, absolutely anything, and I'm willing to do it. Lord, you can send me anywhere. You, you can do whatever you want with me because I know of the grace that I have found in Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today. And as I looked and studied and was being encouraged this week, and by the way, as an aside, thank you for the freedom that uh, you afford to me. I was able to go away this week and join with about 6,000 brothers and sisters uh, down in Orlando at the Gospel Coalition Conference. Every state, all 50 states and 50 countries were represented uh, at that conference. You want to talk about singing you put 6,000 people together who are convinced of the love of Jesus Christ and their absolute need of Him, and the singing just comes out. The place was rocking. And I was sitting and talking with a man who looked at me, and he goes, are you with this group of people? And I was like, yeah, I am. He goes, who are you? Who are y'all? And he, didn't, he was from Pennsylvania, so he didn't say y'all. But um, he said, who are you? What are you doing here? And I said, well, we're a Christian uh, group of people coming. And we're here, and he goes, well, I can hear this singing. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. We celebrate the risen Christ uh, in our lives, and we're just captivated by him. And that's why we're here to learn more about that. And I said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm here for a convention of uh, funeral home directors. And I said, isn't that awesome that your ministry has no hope without the ministry that we have? And what an important relationship that we have that you need to come and know the hope of Jesus Christ so that when you're doing your work so well and that important task of being a funeral home director, you can actually share with the people that you're with the hope that we know someone who walked into a grave and walked out. And he looked at me like I had ten heads. <laughs> and I was able to sit there with him and at least tell him initially about the hope of Jesus Christ. And in the hope that maybe as he was there providentially by God to be right there in that same hotel with five or 6,000 Christians from all over the world, that maybe he would come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. And so I thank you for the privilege of being able to go away and to be refreshed and encouraged uh, this week in that. And so we come back, and one of the things that I was more convinced about than anything else is we need to come back and come back and come back and come back to the basis of our salvation. 
that it is absolutely foundational for us to understand these things so that we can then live the lives that God uh, gave for us to live, that we were created uh, to live, to know who we are, that we could actually come alive uh, within the middle of it. And it happens here as we begin to look at several things uh, together this morning. The first is this. We're going to look at the purpose of our salvation. We're going to look at the purpose of our salvation. Then we're going to look at the means uh, of our salvation, or, or excuse me, then we're going to look at what are we saved from. Then we're going to look at the means of our salvation, of how we are saved. And then finally, we're going to look at our proper response to salvation. So the first thing, though, the purpose of our salvation. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. The Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host. You see, God is saying that the ultimate purpose of all things, not just of our salvation, but specifically of our salvation included in that, is that he would gain the glory in all things. Uh, That God saves people within this world. That God, in his mind, in his wisdom that is insearchable for us, we can look at certain things, but we can't understand it fully. For God, in his whole plan, determined that there would be a redemption that came to those who believed in his son. Uh, That he set forth a plan of salvation that had everything to do with him. That he said, I am doing this. I am saving a people who didn't deserve to be saved. And I am judging those who deserve to be judged. And I'm doing this out of my great mercy and justice combined together that people would see me and and glorify me. That I would be raised above everything else. That we would see him most as our greatest end that we would see him as the greatest and best thing in the life of any person in the world. You see, Paul understood uh, this when he wrote in Romans chapter 11, and he said, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 42, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, the name that he gave to Moses. I am Yahweh. That is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God was saying, folks, what I want you to get overarching of all of this is in the midst of your salvation, I get the glory. That it's about me. Because I'm your ultimate good. I'm your ultimate end. And humanly speaking, we think, that seems rather egotistical. Why wouldn't God want to share that with other people? Why wouldn't God want to just kind of go, well, that's a little bit on you, and mostly on me, but I'll share a little bit with that because he understood this. It's for our best that we see him as our greatest good. That he has to be preeminent in all things. It says that God is, as John Piper put it one time, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. For what he is saying is for us as people to look around and realize that there's no other hope. There's nothing else other than finding our hope in him. 
that he is our glory. That he is, and that word glory is weightiness. It's this sense of his weightiness. That it's his sense of power and majesty. And he's saying it's in me that you find that. And I don't share it with anybody else. And so it's important to start there. And he said it over and over and over again in chapter 14. He says, I'm doing this that I gain the glory. I'm doing this. I'm setting everything up in your life so that I gain the glory. You see, God arranged the circumstances in this situation so that in the end, he took away every possible explanation other than to explain it as his hand moving on the behalf of his people. Look at what he did. Look at the terms that he sent them by. It said he walked them out and they went up and he said he sent them to the Red Sea and they were what? In verse 2, they were facing it. You've got a million people now walking up. And if I'm one of those people, my first thought would be something like this. <laughs> I don't see a bridge. I don't see any boats. I don't see a bridge. I'm not sure how we're getting by that way. But, okay, but that's where the big pillar is, and that's where we're supposed to follow. So we're trusting that God has led us to this situation. And then I probably would have looked around and realized, our flank is exposed. If Egypt comes after us, we're in deep trouble. What are we going to do? And then, after some period of time, we don't know exactly how long, the earth began to tremble. Because it says that the entire military of the greatest military of that day, the mechanized units of the chariots and all the infantry and all the archers and all of them marched out of Egypt in formation. Thud, 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 thud reverberating by the thousands across the plains uh, of the desert. And they were moving in a direction because they knew what God had done. God sent the people into a dead end. Pharaoh goes, ha, 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 this God that they serve. He took them out and he sent them up against the Red Sea. We got them now. And God arranged the circumstances in that situation so that no one could get the glory for the victory but him alone. Folks, Look into the circumstances of your own life. Of how God has arranged the circumstances of your life, the providence of your life, to let you realize this. There is no hope for your salvation outside of His sovereign hand moving for you. We need to understand that. We need to understand that God is arranging all things, that He would get the glory. It makes me go back to the story uh, quickly of Gideon. And I love Gideon because Gideon was going to be the leader of the people of Israel and he was going to lead them out against the Midianites. And the Midianites were thousands and thousands of Midianites and Israel had a bunch of warriors. And God said, you got too many warriors. And you can imagine Gideon going, what? God said, you've got too many. And he dwindled them down to just a few hundred. Why? He said, I want to make sure that no one gets this wrong. I won the battle today, not you. And that's what God is saying here over and over again. I get the glory in the end of the day that your life is designed not to be about you, but something greater than you. It's incredibly freeing, by the way, to take yourself out of the equation a little bit and to know that this all has to do with God and his glory. And so we see that the why or that the purpose of salvation was for God's glory. If you want to read more about that, I would encourage you to read The End for Which God Created the World. It's a treatise by Jonathan Edwards, one of the, the finest ever written, and I'd put that to you to read. So the second question that we have to look at quickly is this. 
Well, what were we saved from? We know that the purpose for our salvation is to bring glory to God. We've made it incredibly individualistic in our world, by the way. We're very American in that, that your salvation is about you. Or even a group of you, of y'alls, or all y'all, if we want to make it really plural southern uh, in that. But it's not about you. You realize that your salvation was always about God. It's about him saying, I want the world to see how awesome I am. And here's one way that I'm going to do it. I'm going to save that mess of a man, Bill McCutcheon. So that the world would look and go, how in the world did he get saved? And all the response could be is because of the greatness and glory of God himself. Not me. See how freeing that is? So God says that the reason is that we uh, would give him the glory. And then the what are we saved from is simply this. We're saved from bondage to sin and death. Again, look at, the con- look at the situation of the people. They were in absolute loss. They could not save themselves. They had Egypt, which is a picture in the scriptures of sin and death, that it pictures that, and that Egypt was coming and pursuing them. It's interesting. One writer put it this way. The people of Israel got out of Egypt, but they didn't get Egypt out of them. That they were still at some level under the power of Egypt. They were still at some level under the power of sin and death, under the power of all of that. And God had to take them through the Red Sea and destroy ultimately their enemy before they could be finally free. And that's the same place that we find ourselves, that we're standing up against a sea, that we have an enemy who is greater than us, that we have no hope in and of ourselves, and that our only response is that that the Israelites had, and that's this, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. Unless God shows up on the scene right now, there is absolutely no hope for me. Now, you can be the most zealous person in the world. You can be the one, you can be the strongest guy. Let's say you're the best looking, biggest, strongest person in the world. And you said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to take on Pharaoh. You know what would have happened to you? You'd be the biggest, strongest dead guy that Israel had. Or you could be the sweetest, kindest, most persuasive woman in the world and you could bake the best cookies. And so you took out these wonderful unleavened cookies and you were going to just woo sin and death in that way. And you were going to try uh, to get Pharaoh uh, not to pursue you just because you're so sweet and southern and wonderful and nice. And you know what you'd be? The most sweet and southern, wonderful, nice dead person in front of Egypt. Because what God is trying to say is, folks, you are so helpless and so lost in and of yourselves that there is no hope of salvation unless I show up on the scene. You see, we are saved from bondage to sin and death. That we are under that bondage to sin and death. And that we in and of ourselves cannot free ourselves from it. The scriptures say you were dead in your sins and transgressions. transgressions. Uh, that you were captive to it, that you were lost in the middle of it. And here's an important thing, and I don't want to beat it too much, but you have to understand it. Do you understand how lost your lostness was? Or were you thinking you're just a little lost? That you've still got a breadcrumb trail that's going to lead you out of the woods and you're going to be able to escape the wicked witch uh, in that way? Or were you utterly lost? You see, it's only the utterly lost person that really needs salvation. If you're only a little bit lost or you have some capacity in yourself uh, to get yourself unlost, then you really don't need a savior. But if you can relate, and that's why these stories are so awesome to us, that you relate to Snow White, 
that you relate to Cinderella under the dominion of an evil stepmother, that you relate to Sleeping Beauty, that you relate and you realize there is no salvation for me unless a prince rides in and kisses me with the kiss of life and of love, that then I come alive and I'm free. Otherwise, you'll have a little life in Christ. You'll give a little, but you won't give all. You see, all of us were designed to live for something. We're designed to worship something. And whatever you are living for, whatever you're saying in your mind, I live for this. For some of you, it's pleasure. For some of you, it's accolades. For some of you, uh, it's you live for your spouse. You live for uh, your children. Your children, you live for your parents. You live for school. You live for some Whatever it is you're living for, you're in servants to. That you're serving it and you're in bondage to it. And at some point, at some point in the day, and at some point in your life, whatever you're serving is going to ask you this. It's going to demand that you pay up. It's going to demand uh, that you meet the requirements of whatever it is. Whatever you live for that's controlling your life enslaves you. And eventually it will say to you, serve me or die. And so you have to ask that question, what are you serving? What are you bound to in that way? What is your life? And then to see and ask the question, how then are you freed from that? But we're all utterly lost. You see, the gospel is not about turning bad people into good people. The gospel at its very heart is taking lost people and making them found people. It's coming in and taking people who are in slavery and making them free people. That's the heart of the gospel. But if you don't think you're lost, if you don't think you're lost, then the gospel isn't really all that good news to you. You talk to people regularly, and I do, and I hear something like this. Well, I'm trying really hard to live the Christian life. Well, what that means is there's something I can do at the end of the day to make it all right. I can do this in and of myself. But God is saying, you are so utterly lost that I have to show up on the scene. And that leads to the next question. And the next question is this, how then are we saved? If we're so lost, Bill, and we're so captivated and we have no hope of getting out of it, how then are we saved? And look what God says in this, I'm going to show up on the scene. He says to the people of Israel, this is awesome. Uh, looking at verses 13 and 14, he says this. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Oh, isn't that awesome? You want to know how you're saved? You're saved this way by the mercy and grace of God alone on your behalf. That all we do is we stand and we go, that's awesome. You know what your part is and my part is in our great salvation? It's to be quiet. It's to be quiet. I remember as a kid talking with my dad, and it, at first it hurt me, and even hurt me as an adult, and I've really worked through it and realized I understand now a little bit of what my dad was doing when I was trying to help him with a project. You know that when you're the guy and you know what you're doing, you've got somebody who has absolutely no clue what they're doing, and they try to help. And my dad would say, Billy, what are you doing? And I'm saying, I'm trying to help. And he goes, well, don't. Don't. Just sit there and hand me a tool when I ask you a tool. Don't think before that. Just do what I'm asking you to do. That's kind of God here going, you don't need to help me in your salvation. You don't need to clean yourself up and then come to me. 
You don't need to obey a bunch of rules. You don't need to obey and do all this. This is the essential difference of Christianity than every other world religion. Every other religion, secularism and all the rest say this, do these things and then you'll be saved. Obey, pray five times a day, go to church, give alms to the poor, empty yourself of yourself, become one with the great one, do all of these things, transcend this world, get out of the flesh into the spiritual. All of that depends upon you and God is saying in the middle of this, no, it depends ultimately on me alone. I fight your battle for you. That I'm the one who's going to free you from the hand of the Egyptian. I am the one. Listen to these verses from John and 1 John. Truly, truly, this is Christ speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What he's saying is this. Here it is, that we have to pass from death into life by Christ going through and opening the waters and leading us through on dry ground. That Christ is the one who's doing it all on us. So it's by grace through faith in him alone. And it's ultimately this too. We have a mediator within the midst of that. And I don't have time to unpack it fully, but look at this. The people of Israel had a mediator, Moses that he equated himself with the people of Israel, for he got in trouble for the people's sin. So he was identified with the people, but he was also identified with God. It was through his hand that God did the work. We have a greater Moses who was identified with us, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the very righteousness of God, that Christ identified himself in his humanity with us, but Christ in his deity identified himself with the Father, so that through that he could walk into a grave or he could be taken into a grave and come walking out, that he would obliterate the power of sin and death in our lives. Folks, if you're here today and you haven't heard this, here's the hope of the gospel. Trust in Christ alone. Put your hope in him and not of yourself. And then we'll end with this before all of us fall out from heat and humidity, exhaustion. It's this. What's your response to all of it? It's really simple. You respond, the people responded in obedience. It says that they, that they feared the Lord, that they obeyed the Lord, and that they sang to the Lord. The end of 14, the beginning of 15. Here's a litmus test. If you don't see God as great and he don't, you don't shake a little bit in His presence, if you're not confounded by who He is and awestruck in front of Him, Yesterday, I walked around and I was amazed at the thousands of people who were awestruck by a 21-year-old boy who swings an iron club, it hits a little ball, and won a golf tournament in Augusta. They were pushing, they were shoving, they were trying to get close just to see this boy walk by who's the age of my sons. We're awestruck by him. Are you in any way similarly awestruck by the God of the universe? To go, he is awesome and unfathomable and I want to be in his presence. That you shake and you just go, you don't know what to say in his presence. Like, whoa, whoa. I remember when I met Michael Jordan, I extended my hand. It was kind of gross. His fingers like touched my forearm. And I shook his hand and I wanted to say, I've been a big fan. And I looked at him and I went, you. He goes, good to meet you. And walked on. I was like, no, come back. I want to say something really profound to you. 
the people of God, when they come into the presence of Him and see the greatness of His salvation that He's wrought, we are in awe of Him. Shaking at our shoes of His great mercy shown to us, but also shaking in our shoes for the justice that washed up on the shore. They saw the bodies of those who opposed to their God. Folks, I don't know how to say this without just saying it. We need a better theology of judgment in hell. Because in the end of the day, love does win, but not in the way the modern theologian is saying he does. At the end of the day, the Lord says there's only two types of people in the world, those who are mine or those who aren't. And those who aren't will face his awe-inspiring judgment. And my greatest hope for you today is you wouldn't be on that side of the Red Sea. But you would come to Christ and be awed by the grace and the mercy that he showed. So much so that it then leads you to a life of obedience. That leads you out. If this is what he's done for me, Ten Commandments, give me more. I, I, I want my whole life to represent you. And then ultimately and finally this, we worship him. We worship him. That our worship is not based at all on our condition in life, but it's based on our condition of soul before God who says, I've saved you. You were dead. You were lost. I've saved you. It gives you a song to sing every single day. And so as we end today, we're going to give opportunity. I'll invite the team to come back up. We'll give opportunity for that now as we come and we sing a song of the great God of Jacob who has come and freed us, who has come and given us hope in life. And if none of this makes sense to you, I'll be around for a couple of minutes this morning. There are elders around. Um, a couple of the elders, if you would, come up after the service uh, this morning and stand up front. If you have questions about these things, or that you don't know if you truly are serving Christ, come and make sure today of that. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. We praise the God of Jacob. We praise the God of Abraham. We praise our God, who you freed us from the dominion and the bondage of sin and death, and that when all hope was lost, that there was no way for us to be saved, Christ came, and you opened our dead hearts, and that we saw the light, and that we were drawn into your presence, and that we simply stood there in amazement as our God moved powerfully on our behalf. And we have seen salvation. And we have walked through on dry ground. And we are heading to a promised land. And while we go, Father, would we be in awe of you? Would we obey you in righteousness? And would we always sing praises to our King? We give you glory in your Son's name. Amen.